The power dynamic between employees and employers continues to swing back and forth as companies continue to deal with return to work initiatives, large layoffs due to economic conditions, and trying to address work shortages. Can technology help this situation, or is it creating hurdles for improving morale at companies? We're going to explore several of these issues on the next episode of Today in Tech. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Today in Tech. I'm Keith Shaw. Joining me on today's show is Joe Mall. He is the author of three books and the founder of the Boss Better Leadership Academy. His most recent book is titled Employalty, How to Ignite Commitment and Keep Talent in the New Age of Work. Welcome to the show, Joe. I am so glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. Joe, you have a copy of the book that you want to hold up or is, is that... like? <laughs> There we go. We can do that. Hey, listen, have, have book, we'll flash it. Absolutely. <laughs> and you're also the host of a podcast, so I can tell that you've, are, you've got the great sound and you've got the, the podcast sort of voice. Well, I try. We, we do our best. <laughs> All right. So uh, I want to jump, jump into the, the recent news of sort of big layoffs in the tech industry. Uh, there's, you know, which was a result of sort of overhiring and during the pandemic, this whole work of work at home movement. And you now have you're seeing companies that are sort of forcing company uh, employees back into the office. And, you know, you're seeing things like mandates and sort of this relationship between the employee and the employer has sort of swung back and favor of the employer, but some might say that that's could is actually doing more damage. I wanted to talk to you. Like, do you agree that, you know, companies aren't might not be valuing their employees uh, as much as they once did, whether it was a, whether it was before the pandemic or what if, what are you seeing in the space? Because you've been monitoring sort of this dynamic for, for years now, right? Yeah. And, and I guess the phrase as much as they once did is kind of relative because are we talking about 1952 or, or 2002? Right. right. So there are some trends here that are clear when you both look anecdotally and at a lot of data that's out there. So we know that here in the U.S., we've had wages remain largely stagnant in a lot of industries for almost 40 years, really until about two years ago was the first time we saw some movement around uh, the median U.S. wage for workers. At the same time, we've seen workloads explode in that same time period. And then when you look at job hiring data over just the last 13 or so years, we've seen a lot more folks who have been switching jobs in pursuit of better quality of life. And I know we're gonna get a little bit more into that mm -hmm. here today, but yes, the, the short answer to your question is yes. I think there are a lot of folks across industries who have been overworked, underpaid, burned out, and they're sort of recalibrating how their work fits into their lives. And at a time when there's more opportunity than ever before to try your hand at a different role in a different employer, then people do go looking for better treatment. Yeah. Talk about a little bit about sort of the basis of, of the book, the, the newest book, but then also in, in terms of, um, you know, how you decided that you wanted to write more about this dynamic. Uh, I think you call yourself a recovering HR person or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've spent nearly 20 years teaching leaders how to be better bosses, and I really kind of nerd out around the psychology of what makes people love their work, right? Where does commitment come from? And about a year and a half ago, I was on a podcast like yours, and we had this wide-ranging discussion about where commitment comes from in the workplace. And at the very end of the show, the host said to me, all right, Joe, let's get you out of here on this. Let's put a nice bow on this for everyone. In one sentence, where does commitment come from at work? And I went, <laughs> you know, I don't think I can give it to you in one sentence. And then, man, I recapped our entire conversation in the world's longest run-on sentence. <laughs> and... 
you know, afterwards, I kept thinking about that and thinking about how we don't serve leaders and organizations well if we can't concisely answer that question, if we can't point to listen, these are the two or three things you've got to get right. And when you do, people join and they stay and they care and they try. So that was really the genesis for this book. And, you know, it took me a while. I was marrying together those 20 years of experience doing this work with a lot of this research around what's happening in the labor market right now. And so I'll give you my one sentence answer to that question that I would give now if I could go back in time. And this is really the framework for the book. Commitment and retention appear when employees are in their ideal job doing meaningful work for a great boss. These are the three factors of employalty and there are dimensions to each one, but by and large, if we get those things right, you're going to have a committed workforce. Okay. And so in your book, you say that sort of every employee uh, at at every company has sort of an internal scorecard that determines whether they're going to stay long-term and commit to their work. So yeah. Tell me how you, how, you know, what are the, some of the things that are on that scorecard? How did you develop this idea of, of, uh, of, cause I've got some story. I, I, and I'll, I'm going to jump in with some stories as you, as you talk about it, but, but tell me about this scorecard. Yeah. So when I speak at conferences or do training inside organizations, I show the scorecard as a Venn diagram. And uh, the scorecard is made up of those three factors I just listed. Ideal job, meaningful work, great boss. The, the overlap on the Venn diagram, you have all three of those factors, you get commitment. Here's what's what makes up each one of those. The three dimensions of an ideal job are compensation, workload, and flexibility. Right. If my money's right, my workload's right, and I have a certain amount of flexibility around when, where, and how I work, that job fits into my life like a puzzle piece snapping into place. Mm-hmm. Meaningful work is made up of purpose, strengths, and belonging. So purpose, do I believe my work matters? Strengths, it, th- does my job role ask me to use my unique talents and gifts and skills? And then belonging, am I a celebrated and accepted member of my team or my work community? When those three things are in place, we find our work fulfilling and we want to do it well. And then that third factor is great boss. And you know, there are dozens of things we have to get right for someone to point to us and say, man, I've got a great boss. But we think the three most important are trust, coaching and advocacy. Mm -hmm. And so all of those go on that internal scorecard. And if I'm an employee and I can check most or all of those boxes in terms of the experiences that I have at work, I'm going to show up, I'm going to care, I'm going to try, and I'm probably going to stay. Now, when when does this sort of scorecard break down in terms of of an employee looking at that in their in their brain um is it is it just if one of those things starts to go bad if if someone feels that their work isn't meaningful or if they end up with a bad boss or you know does it does it does it depend on the type of person that they are about how much you know like how much crap can i take before I, i finally you know quit the job type of a thing Yes to everything that you said. Okay. So it it does change depending on the experiences I'm having at work, right? If I've been working for a great supervisor for a while and this person trusts me and coaches me and advocates for me, and then I get a new boss in there and I see some of those experiences start to slip, it doesn't take long for me to wonder, hey, I don't know if I want to be a part of this much longer. I may lift my head up and hop onto job boards and look around for something different. At the same time, where we're at in our lives also influences our score card. So for example, I'm 46 years old. What's important to me now is very different than what was important to me at 26. Right. At 26, you know, I had a car that was maybe going to last another year, <laughs> right? I had nothing saved for retirement. So I was really looking to up my compensation. Now at 46, 
I need to get my kids off the bus at 4.15 every day. So having a, a, a some flexibility around my schedule right. is way more important to me now. And so our priorities and what sort of the size of those experiences on our internal scorecard can shift and change over the course of our lives. Okay, yeah, that's a great point. So that that even even what you value, depending on where you are in your, your career, can change with that scorecard as well. Like uh, the story I was going to give you was um, I w- in high school, in college, College, I worked at a Burger King in my local town and I was I loved the job because it was it, it was paying a little higher than than the typical kind of fast food restaurant because I was on the closing staff so they gave a little bit more so wages I was fine with um, the, the working environment I, you know I had a lot of friends and and you know we got along great and we, you know we were really efficient at this but then they switched the supervisors on me so yeah. a new boss came in and I was, you know, I was running the sandwich boards and I, you know, the, the, another guy was doing the, the broiler and then there was someone who was up front. New boss comes in, decides that she's going to shake things up. She puts me on the broiler, which is like the dirtiest, like most disgusting job <laughs> in a Burger King. And I, in my head, I was like, well, you know, we had this thing going. It was really good. Uh, and and I, I think I was 18 at the time. And I was like, you know what? I don't want to do that. And she's like, well, no, you have to do it. And I was like, okay, see you later. And I walked out. Um, so that is in my, I guess if you're calling this the internal scorecard, that's when it hit it for me. Yeah. And so again, but again, I was young and stupid at that point. (laughs) But but the foundation of all that, though, is your humanity. And it's what you find interesting and fulfilling. And we know, based on all this research that we've done, that this scorecard is really about creating a more humane employee experience for people. So I was a Pizza Hut man. You were a Burger King guy. One of my earliest jobs was at Pizza Hut. And I had a boss who let me try everything, right? I answered phones and took phone orders. I cooked. I waited tables. I unloaded the truck on Sunday. Days. And that really appealed to me, that variety, right? right? If my boss had said, you can only do one thing, I would have gotten bored quickly. And that would have been more about getting done what they wanted instead of maybe factoring in just a little bit what was interesting to me. And when you do that, when, when we think about the humanness of our employees and the way that their jobs impact their lives, when when we stop accounting for those things, we start treating people as a commodity and we create start creating systems and policies that treat people as assets instead of fully formed human beings. And very quickly, you see an erosion of the experiences that are on that scorecard. Have you found that this sort of this dehumanization kind of idea has been happening more recently or is it has it always been around and, and like companies have either got better or worse at sort of dealing with this with employees you know it's been i think a slow burn in recent decades and so we have a we see a lot of policies in a lot of organizations that are dehumanizing that we've come to just accept as a normal part of workplace behavior i'll give you a couple examples Mm -hmm. in restaurants and retail industries for example a lot of workers don't get their schedule for next week until the end of this week that's inhumane. How are you supposed to plan your life? If you're, a, if you have kids, if you're the primary caregiver to an elderly parent, you just want to go see the latest new movie that's coming out, right? right. That, that's inhumane. We know that there are, 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 uh, employers who will dictate when people can go to the bathroom, right? Or that they have to stand during the course of their work. You know, the truth is I'm going to not, not buy groceries because the little old lady at the checkout stand is on a stool, right? The, and these are inhumanities that are often reserved for people at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. You, you've probably not heard of an accountant being told when he or she can go to the bathroom. Right. Right. And so this idea really dehumanization is just, 
administering policies and systems that ignore the suffering it creates for people during and outside of work. Does a, does a policy like that sort of like, well, how does a company sort of defend a policy like that? Or do they come back, come back with, well, if we, uh, if we allowed Gladys and I'm just going to use her as a, as a general name. It's a good name. If, I'm if with we, you. If I can we, see Gladys. Yeah. If we allowed Gladys to sit at, at the cash, the cash register, well, she might become lazy or, or there's this, you know, they're just, they're just going to be lazy if we. Or if we let them go to the bathroom whenever they want, then they're going to spend 10 minutes in there or 15 minutes. And then now we've lost some, some time where they were, can be productive. Do you hear that from employers or, is, or, or do they just not think about that? Absolutely. It's, those are a part of the sort of the myths and beliefs that a lot of leaders have about how to maximize performance in the workplace, right? There are a lot of leaders who are walking around who operate under the assumption that most people left to their own devices are going to do the minimum or try to get away with murder, right? It's it's why so many people have resistance to remote work. There's a belief that people are going to have Netflix on in the background while they do their laundry instead of actually doing work. When the tr- and, and, and we end up imposing all of these systems and structures on a work force of largely ethical people in in fear of or to prevent the rare bad apple. And it sends a really powerful message, right? Which is that we don't trust you. And the truth is that most employees are ethical people who care about doing a good job and yeah. have pride in their work. And, you know, the way that they've been able to defend it, to answer your question, for years has been supply and demand, right? We've, we've had uh, more uh, jobs than we've had, or excuse me, more people interested in jobs than we've had um positions right so we've we we, yeah so we've had to uh you know kind of endure being treated that way in some corners but now the 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 tables have turned right we have a lot more jobs than there are people to step into them right now and that's part of what you're seeing around this pushback yeah yeah um there you know there's so many books about sort of how to become a better leader i I, you know at least the last 30 40 years has been tons of business books written out Mm -hmm. there if you're a manager or if you're an executive just go to a bookstore or go to the apps there's there's a billion of them um but yet we're still seeing a lot of examples of bad bosses bad companies bad attitudes Mm -hmm. why is this still happening is it is it just that they're ignoring the advice or they want to do the advice but they can't like what what do you see are some of the forces that are still out there. I think one of the biggest obstacles is that there has not been simplicity and clarity around what we're supposed to focus on and get right. Right. We can acknowledge that there uh, are a lot of things that leaders and business owners need to do to create an environment where people thrive. But at times it feels like you have to memorize a doctoral dissertations amount of information. Oh, I got to focus on the onboarding experience and wages and I've got to focus on diversity and inclusion and I've got to focus on um, camaraderie and I need to, to tie to people's strengths. The whole reason we wrote this book was to bring clarity to it, mm-hmm. to say, yes, there are a lot of things you got to get right. Right, but let's put them into three clear buckets, help you engineer those, and most of the time you're going to do pretty well. That's where we came up with ideal job, meaningful work, and great boss. Well, well is it also a, a case of where uh, a company that's doing well then tends to focus on, okay, well, we'll, we'll focus on these these keeping our employees happy type thing. But as soon as the stock price goes down or as soon as a revenue projection goes down, then it's all out that when, you know, then everything goes out the window and you're just like, Oh, got to do layoffs, got to cut, 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 cut. And then you're back in that loop of, of you're never going to keep these employees happy if you keep doing layoffs and things like that. There's certainly a loop around 
the 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 human costs that businesses carry you know right the 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 salaries and the benefits are uh, for people are typically the 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 highest number on an organization's balance sheet and right. so for a business owner when there are economic struggles it, it it makes sense to look at that and say you know is there a place where we can cut but you're absolutely right you create these cycles where if i am not committed to my employees as an organization how am i possibly going to be committed to them if at the first uh you know bit of turbulence we turn around and we start hacking away at people's benefits or their their employment overall then we've created an entirely transactional relationship and that shows in the way that employees end up interacting with their employers right you know i think by by and large what we know is that people generally do a great job when they believe they have a great job and so my experience has been that people running organizations tend to fall into one of two camps one is take care of the people and the people will take care of everything else right and we'll, we'll, we're going to invest in people we're going to treat them really well we're going to focus on that employee experience others will say my goal here is stockholder profit right mm -hmm. so let's let's optimize for that so we're going to operate at a minimum staffing threshold we're going to pay the lowest wages possible and the problems that organization deals with are related to churn they're related to turnover and retention rehiring retraining and in a lot of cases quality and and safety and you know customer experience because when you're running a business with the with the uh lowest possible costs related to people, then you're probably not getting the level of commitment that the other category of leaders gets when right. they focus on people. Can you get, can you find a middle ground between those those two extremes where you can say we value the employees, but we are also, you know, we are trying to be more productive and, and save costs and things like that? Or is it an either or situation? I mean, it's akin to threading a needle, right? Yeah. Um, but I think the argument we're making is why spend the time and effort to thread the needle when we know that focusing on people produces significant results. Yeah. Right. If you want to level up the quality of the products and services that your company delivers, if you want uh, your customers to have an extraordinary experience, if you want to be able to find and keep top talent, then investing in these three areas of ideal job, meaningful work and great boss clearly are the shortest runway to get there right right and do you have do you have some examples uh of of some companies of uh that do good things that like that are that are succeeding in these in these uh little buckets that you've that you've been talking about yeah, when we wrote this book, we were very intentional in trying to source stories from small to mid-sized employers, right? Because yep. not everybody works for, um, you know, Southwest Airlines or Patagonia or some of these big companies yeah. that you hear about a lot. And uh, we have a ton of, of stories in the book. We, we found a story of a, an LED company in Oklahoma who really focuses on, and they didn't use the language that we use in the book to talk about ideal job, meaningful work, great boss. But mm -hmm. this is really their whole philosophy of, of treat people as well try to make it so that people ask themselves every day man these people here treat me so well why would i ever go anywhere else that's really at the heart of their philosophy we wrote about a hospital in kentucky we wrote about a nonprofit in seattle and so we wrote about a lot of organizations who really are prioritizing things like flexibility generous wages better training for leaders better uh belonging better coaching for employees uh, they all sort of bake into the pie for these employee experiences that people need to be at their best uh, this is going to be a little offshoot joe but um i wanted to hear your opinion on on uh the the term family whenever a company says to them like oh we're just like a family 
I run away if I ever hear a company tell me that because um, most families that I've been involved with, they fight all the time and, you know, it's, it's almost dysfunctional. And, and so um, there's an example of a company I worked for and they were like, oh, we're different from other companies. We treat you like family. We're like family. And, and that was the company that then laid me off uh, over the phone, uh, yep. which is like, that's not really family of you. Like, do you have an opinion yeah. on that or is that just me being, you know, I, I just got into a bad situation? I don't think you're wrong. I think what you just described is the experience for a lot of folks. I'm not a huge fan of using that language yeah. to try to talk about the sort of culture that you're creating. This is why in the book, we actually use the language destination workplace. I'd much rather somebody tell me, we we aspire to be a destination workplace. We want to be the place that once you land here, you look around and say, there couldn't possibly be any other place that I would want to work. This, yeah. is, this is where I landed. It's where I want to be. And just for all the reasons you just described, because families can be a mess and some people don't <laughs> want right they they some people want really clear boundaries between their work and their lives outside of work right right if you get invited to something after work some people can't go because they've got other obligations or you know maybe you're like me which after 8 or 9 hours with my coworkers I'm like bye you're great people i love you i love the work we do together but i'm going to go home and be with not you right right because that's that's what my priority is at that time in my life and so understanding that there's a difference in terms of the kind of relationship that employees want to have with their employer the word family is not always a um <laughs> a, 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 a positive descriptor for folks. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm also wondering if if companies that brag about their cult, company culture, if they're trying to hide something, or if they're or if they're almost too confident in, in things like that. I don't know if you have a, a similar opinion as as well. I th it's almost like the whole thing of like charity. If you start uh, bragging about how much charity you give, I'd rather be a chair, you know, company that doesn't brag about that kind of stuff. I don't know if 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 you feel the same well, way. Well, you know, there are a lot of things I think uh, organizations pay lips service to that are great ideas, but that doesn't mean they are executed at the employee level. I wrote in the book about how I tried to not use the word culture in the book wherever possible, because I've had too many experiences where senior leaders get in a room and they do a bunch of work on a flip chart and they come out of that room with these magic words that they say, this is our culture. We have a culture of employee transparency. And then they post job descriptions that don't include salary. <laughs> right, right. Or we have a culture of respect, but then Gladys still has to sit on the stool even though she's had four ankle surgeries, <laughs> right? So there's a disconnect between what, what sometimes leadership says we're about and what we're actually about. And I'm sorry, but if you're not posting the salaries on your positions, don't tell me you're committed to transparency. Right, right. Yeah. If anybody says that they're transparent, it's probably they're they're probably not at, at all. Um, all right. I want to circle back on on the role of technology here, because again, I, in this discussion, uh, it feels like companies that that might use technology in a good way can help improve morale. But then in a similar vein, companies that use technology could actually destroy morale. And I've got a couple of examples and I want to hear your thoughts on this. Um, for example, uh, companies that allow employees to have better equipment or, you know, they, they've updated their computer. You know, you always get a new computer every two to three years. Uh, you, yeah. You're allowed to choose what smartphone you have versus a sort of a policy is like you must use this computer and this phone and and too bad if you can't. Um, Things like that, or, or you know, that that's on the good side. Like people will will be more value. You know, do you agree that if if you give them technology that helps them do their jobs better, that that's a good thing? 
I do. And, I, and that falls into that advocacy dimension that we talked about, yeah. right? If my boss is making sure I have the information, materials, and equipment I need to do my job, I'm much more likely to stay and I'm going to give it all I've got. I had a colleague a couple of years ago who was an HIMS specialist in a massive healthcare organization. And so part of her job was to run these huge reports every day. And when I worked with her, I was across the cubicle farm from her. And every time she would go to run a mid-sized report, it sounded like her computer was was coming in for a landing and you know she repeatedly would ask for new equipment because it would take ages to run these reports and she was told as you said oh no we can't afford that or our contract doesn't allow it and so her ability to do her job was limited by a lack of effective equipment and so in that case you're actually chopping away at someone's morale and commitment uh yeah in terms of uh, bad examples too like you know either making com making employees use legacy equipment that's outdated or things like that or or creating sort of online portals for onboarding or IT help requests things like that I, I would argue that taking the people out of the equation can sort of hinder morale especially if if someone is you know if my computer doesn't work it's easier for me to pick up a phone and call someone rather than go online, fill out a ticket, describe your situation, and then they might get back to you or they might not get back to you. That's kind of demoralizing, isn't it? It, it can be. I mean, I think the the... The larger the organization, the more necessary those kinds of systems and portals and technology are, right? Yeah. Especially when you talk about huge employers that have contracts with certain brands and certain suppliers and need to have universal systems to allow for these kinds of, of sourcing of materials and whatnot. What I think matters most, though, is whether the person who is struggling to navigate those systems can get help quickly from someone who cares. Mm -hmm. Right. If I go to my boss and say, hey, I've tried to log on and, requ and requisition this new equipment twice and it's not going anywhere and that person dismisses me, that's where my morale gets cut down. But if my boss says, well, let's take 10 minutes and look at it together or, hey, you know what? I'm going to call Joe up in purchasing because Joe owes me a favor and let's get this done today. Right. That's the difference. Right. That's and advocacy. as an employee, I would feel like, oh, my gosh, my boss cares about me to get this problem fixed. Yep. You know, that's that's yep. a that's a little gold star in, in my internal scorecard. Right. Yep, no question. All right, so uh, one of the things that we were going to talk about too was this great resignation idea that that um, many people are saying that it was that it started in 2020 with sort of the the pandemic and people started working at home. People started realizing, you know, I like this work at home thing, and you know, I, that's a benefit I don't want to give up, and I'm going to quit and find a new job if if my my boss tells me to come back into work. You're you have a position of this this whole great resignation thing started much sooner than that, right? Like what's right. Yeah. What's your opinion on that? Well, most people listening to this might remember the Great Recession in 2008. And okay. in 2009, we get our economic feet under us a little bit. And then in 2010, here in the U.S., about 2 million more people voluntarily quit their jobs than the year before. It was right around 20, 21 million folks. And then the next year, it went up by another 2 million. And then the next year, it went up again by about another 2 million. And every year since, we've had about 2 million more people voluntarily quit their jobs than the year before. And so we went from about 20 21 million people doing this in 2010 to 50 million people doing it last year. If you put that on a, a chart graph, the trajectory is just an upward slant the entire way. At the exact same time, hiring in the U.S. has followed the exact same trajectory, but at 50% higher levels. So for the past 13 years, we've had about 50% more hiring in every industry category in the U.S. than there has been quitting. So the data tells us clearly that for the last 13 years, these people who are voluntarily leaving their jobs, they're not quitting. 
They're switching. Mm-hmm. They're actually going and looking for what we call in the book upgrades. Because if you ask anybody who has changed jobs in the past year or two, hey, why did you change jobs? You hear a litany of answers. You hear, I wanted better pay or a better schedule, a better commute, a less toxic workplace, more fulfilling work, more career opportunity. But all of those answers roll up to this bigger idea that I am upgrading to improve my quality of life. Right. And this is actually being driven by workloads exploding and wages being stagnant and many of the things that we talked about before. And so the great resignation isn't just mislabeled. It really should be called the great upgrade. Mm-hmm. It actually started 13 years ago. And, and do you think that that um, that people are doing this as as well just because they they value different things in their in their life than they than they did before? Um like I think you 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 just sort of mentioned that as well. Well, it, it is in part around that. So there is a massive recalibration taking place around how work fits into people's lives. But the reason why it's happening is a little complex. We've talked about some of these things, right? We know that overwork, burnout, and wages are playing a factor. But there are two other things playing a factor here, too. One is that when the pandemic hit, it did create a kind of values reshuffling. People looked around and said, boy, my job does not occupy a place in my life that is ideal. Uh, I want to spend more time with my kids. Or, boy, that commute that hour each way to get to the office is miserable and sort of sucks the life out of me and takes two hours out of my day or people who just talked about not being available to do the other things in their lives that they wanted to do right and when remote work exploded in 2020 and showed us that we could do a lot more kinds of work in a virtual environment some folks said i am never going back to the way that it was but the other thing that's happening here is opportunity and so we have had for the last few years millions of open positions here in the United States and we continue to add about a quarter of a million jobs to the economy every year. If you took every unemployed person in the US right now and gave them a job, you'd still have nearly 5 million unfilled jobs tomorrow. Right. And so the argument is there isn't a staffing shortage, there's a great job shortage. And right now, Workers have every opportunity to upgrade than they have ever before. It's sort of the biggest period of worker free agency maybe ever here in the U.S., in part because people are so willing to try something new, but also because there's more chances to do that than ever before. Do you think companies are still being sort of picky and choosy, though, about who they're hiring because it, t- it does take we, we hear, you know, I see articles about how long it takes to hire someone and the hoops that people have to jump through. And I experienced this when I, you know, did not have a job uh, in in 2018 and then it happened again in 2020 with the, with the pandemic uh, you're, you know, you're, you're applying for a job and the, you know, job, you know, companies now use AI to try to filter the resume and there's all these hurdles you have to jump just to even get an interview. Uh, these mm-hmm. job boards, sometimes companies like don't even, they put up a, a job listing, but they're not really going to hire for that position or they're keeping it up there just to just, because they're lazy or whatever. I mean, it, it, it still does seem too hard to try to find a job. So this, this idea of there's plenty of jobs out there always kind of strikes me the wrong way, having been on that other side. Like, you yeah. know, do you hear the same things in, in your circles? And it, yeah, and it's not just anecdotal, right? There, there's more being written in the past two years about the disconnect between employers crying poverty in terms right. of, of, of a number of qualified workers and 
the overly complex and cumbersome systems that they use to source candidates. You know, every single day I can go on LinkedIn and I could find you hundreds of posts from people who have said, this company is out there in the world saying they're desperate for workers. And I've applied four times. I'm overqualified for these positions. I've been directed to the manager. I filled out this online stuff and, and they don't even move into the process. Right. And, you know, some of that is a technology hindrance, but some of that are just our HR business partners not being able to refine and revise their selection processes fast enough to navigate the number of people that they need to find to fill open positions. In terms of your question, though, can employers be picky? You know, it depends. Uh, it depends on what the demand level is in your industry. We know that in tech right now, as you mentioned earlier, yeah. we're seeing some of the giant tech and e-commerce and media companies do some layoffs. And so, yeah, they they are in a position to maybe be a little pickier because of some of that overhiring that they did in 2021 and, and that they're correcting for now. But in nearly every other industry category, they, not only can they not be picky, but in some places they're desperate. In mm -hmm. some places they're blowing up the job descriptions and the minimum qualification qualifications just to get bodies through the door with the belief that we'll train them up okay yeah and and yeah i think that um do you, what's your opinion on, on technology sites like glassdoor um i'm going to just use them as an example of where pe employees can go on to uh talk about the jobs that they've had or the companies that they've had do you do you have an opinion like should should people go there should should companies take those reviews seriously if they're trying to create a better uh, work environment for their for their company employers should take them seriously because employees treat them as truth right so we know that this is especially true among people from underrepresented groups right people of color people who are uh you know lgbtqia mm -hmm. right when you belong to a community that tends to be marginalized in society and in the workplace you're looking for every piece of information that you can find to determine whether or not this is a safe place to work and so we know that people from these communities use sites like glassdoor before applying for a job to find out hey uh, is this a safe place to work are there people like me there am i going to be accepted for who i am and so in that way absolutely they should pay attention to them the truth is there's sort of a crowdsourcing of employee experience taking place online nowadays and we know that employee experience is the primary driver of, of motivation at work and retention and so you know, the question of should we believe what's on the internet? I mean, we've sort of passed that, right? How much on the internet is really believable right. anymore. But when you have people creating TikToks and YouTube shorts and posting on Glassdoor about their experiences with companies, it creates a narrative that employers have to pay attention to. Okay. The argument that if we treat our people very well, we make this a destination workplace, you're going to cut down on the number of those kinds of posts doing harm to your reputation. Have you been able to find companies that have been able to turn around their sort of, and I don't want to use the word culture, but have you been able to, you know, they've been able to, they were maybe a bad company at some point with their employees, like people were quitting, people were, you know, you had bad reviews on, on these sites and, and did they take a hard look at themselves and go, we've got to change and have you been able to see anybody's that, that's changed or is it more of a company just, in denial like they're like well maybe we don't have a you know because I've, I've worked for companies like that too where they've been like oh we don't care about churn we'll just find another person at some point and, and yeah what have you what have you seen out in your research 
All of the above, yeah. Okay. So we we cite in the book, for example, PayPal, who actually has done a lot of really interesting work around what's called generous compensation in recent years. Mm -hmm. um, they figured out that uh, a large percentage of their workforce didn't have any disposable income. Even though they were paying higher, you know, at the top of the market around wages, they realized there was a quality of life issue for a lot of their employees. So they started looking at wages through the lens of, of a variety of factors around take home pay and disposable income and things like that. And they used it to change how they uh, cover certain benefits like healthcare, how they uh, structure their pay scales. We wrote about this in the book because they were they recognized that in order to remain competitive around talent, they had to be concerned not just with what was happening at work, but the employees' lives outside of work. And so I certainly would call that a success story because we've seen their retention go up, their turnover go down. We also wrote in the book about a couple of food service organizations, a couple of fast food companies, for example, who have continued to push wages higher, who have continued to invest in more flexible schedules, who have continued to invest in manager training to give frontline leaders the skills and tools they need to create a more humane workplace for people so that people don't encounter a bad boss and immediately bail out. At the same time, you know, I've got a story in there uh, about an excavating company out of West Virginia that just continues to embrace some really antiquated beliefs about how you treat people. And of course, they're struggling to fill their positions. Hmm. Okay. So, so there is good news that a company can change its, its sort of, uh, culture. I hate using that word. I gotta come up with another word. Yes, all right. Um, they, they need to change the, they need, they can change to become a destination company. How's that? They can, but here's the thing. You can go buy this book and you can read it and you can memorize that Venn diagram. You yep. can say ideal job, compensation, workload, flexibility, meaningful work is purpose, strengths, belonging, great boss, trust, coaching, advocacy. You can be the CEO of a company and you can say, we are going to make these nine experiences the center of our <clears throat> culture <laughs> here. We're going to work on it for years, but you will not create change until you come to believe that the absence of those experiences is inhumane. Yeah. You only foster change in an organization and you only truly become a destination workplace when you come to believe that if people don't have reasonable compensation, if they have an unmanageable workload, if they don't experience belonging, for example, that that's a violation of our humanity. When that happens, that's when change occurs. All right, uh, uh, Joe, uh, we've run out of time on the show here. Uh, again, talk about the, the name of the book again. Show it up. Where can, where can people get it? They can just buy it on Amazon, I'm assuming. Yeah. There's the, the book, book is Employalty, E-M-P, Loyalty. Employalty, How to Ignite Commitment and Keep Top Talent in the New Age of Work. You can order it anywhere you like to buy business books. And, and, you, have, and you have a podcast too, right? And the podcast is yes. called Boss Better? Boss Better Now. All right. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. All right, that's all the time we've got for today's episode. Don't forget to like the video, subscribe to the channel, and add any comments that you have below. Join us every week for new episodes of Today in Tech. I'm Keith Shaw. Thanks for watching.